All right. If you have your Bibles, you can make your way to um, Psalm 51. If you're a guest with us today, my name is Kyle Black. I'm pastor here at Watershed. Um, we're humbled that you would choose to worship with us um, because we know that it's a choice to, to wake up um, and not use your extra hour of sleep for sleep or anything else unless you um, stayed up extra late so you don't really feel it, you know. Um, but either way, it's, it's nice that, that you would choose. We're humbled by that, and we just pray that as we look at God's word, that, that your heart would be saturated with the love of God and, and who he's called us to be. Um, we just spent a month, the month of October, looking at the solas of the Reformation as we celebrated the 500th year of the Reformation. Um, if you haven't ever looked at those doctrines or you weren't with us the, the entire time, then I would encourage you to go look back. They're all on the website or on the app. Um, just, just look through and, and have your soul saturated with these doctrines that, that really we stand upon as we proclaim the truth, that we look back on and then look forward to as we are the church and, and how we're going to preach the gospel that, that represents what those doctrines were reforming, we're bringing back to front as we look back to Christ and what he meant for the people of God, what he meant for us as we move forward. And so now we're, we're, we're coming back into a series that we were in over the Psalms called um, the Learning the Language, because we feel like when you read the Psalms, they give you a, they give you a language to our relationship with God. They, they give us a way to express sometimes emotions that, that we don't necessarily want expressed or that we don't know how to verbalize. And so it's good to look at the Psalm because it gives us a starting point. That when we look at the words of these authors, these writers, that, that sometimes that gives us the starting point and, and the language then to move forward as we follow Christ and we seek after him. And so um, and today we're looking at Psalm 51. It's the, the language of repentance. And, and I just kind of wanted to start with this, this idea. Um, it, it made me think of it just a second ago, my... Uh, the Nike Run app that I use um, gave me an update and said that 55,000 people had already ran today. And I've really kind of felt offended. Like they're trying to call me out like I've been lazy, right? But, but what it made me think, and it's so often, this is what happens to us in our Christian life is we feel like we're not good enough. That if we truly look at ourselves, we feel like that it doesn't matter what's happening. We haven't achieved what other people have that we haven't done what other people, maybe we hold them higher than they might necessarily need to be. And in that situation, we allow our hearts to begin to be corrupted by aspects and understanding that aren't biblical truth for our lives. And so it's, it's healthy to then look at what true repentance looks like as we guard our hearts. And, and maybe when, when you guard your heart, if we're, we're talking about that understanding of, of what happens in the heart of a person is everything else in their life. And so we have to guard our hearts. We have to watch what we allow into our hearts. And maybe you do that continually in an active form. And, and the way that could be active is that you avoid people, places, and you avoid the nouns of your life. right? You avoid those people or places that cause you to stumble or that, that hurts you. Maybe you guard your heart by avoiding those things or 
It's not necessarily an avoidance. It's just a constant act of awareness of all the scenarios or the situations in life that lead you into those dark places of your heart, that where you don't want to be exposed. And so you guard your heart actively by avoiding those people or places or an awareness of the situations that you have. And so when you understand that we have to guard our heart, what we have to realize then is the reality of sin. Because if we're talking about the heart and the effects that it has on us, then sin is an ever-present reality in our lives. But we live in a culture that doesn't like talking about sin, right? We don't want to talk about the bad things. We just want to celebrate the good. And so how do you handle sin? When someone talks about sin, when I say that we have to deal with sin, does that immediately kind of put you on defensive? And, and, and for some of you, if you do, that, that means that maybe you just have a functional doubt of the presence of sin in your life, right? That, that you're pretty good, that you can look at other people and see that, you know what, if I look at the right people, I'm pretty good. I kind of doubt the effect of sin in my life, or maybe you just deal with it. Maybe, and this is a lot of you, if you've grown up in church, you have this understanding of sin that you just deal with it, right? Just perform a little bit better, and then you can somehow achieve that conquering of sin, that we conquer sin by dealing with it, which is a, an unhealthy way of just trying to perform to overshadow the reality of sin in our life, or do you destroy it? Do you completely, utterly destroy it? John Owen would say this is mortification of sin. You kill sin in your life by running to the Lord, by seeking the power of God in your life and sin. And so how you guard your heart and what you do or handle sin, really it gives us the position to actually understand what David is saying in these words that you've probably heard before or at least parts of them. So if you will, follow along as we read Psalm 51. Um, we're going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll move from there. So in Psalm 51, again, this is a, a psalm of David, King David. And in, in Psalm 51, he starts, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God or a broken spirit and a broken contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then he will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. If you will pray with me as we have the Spirit to guide us through our time today. Father God, I just pray as we open your truth. You gotta pray that by your Spirit working, we would have eyes to see your truth. God, we would have ears that would understand your truth, and we'd have hearts that are soaked in your word. And just pray that today that everything of our life would be transformed by your living and active word that you've provided for us. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so when, I, when, you, when you read Psalm 51, what well, stands out? What, what, do you, what do you think about when you read these chapters? Because there's a good chance that for most of you, it's, it's verses 10 and 12, right? It's verses 10 and 12. That create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's been overused and overused. Overused might be a bad way. It's been used a lot, right? You, you constantly have that. Like if you're in a, in a problem and you're, you're hurting, create in me a clean heart, O God. And, you, and you, then you restore to me the joy of your salvation when everything in life is going bad. You've probably had someone tell you, just pray that you would have a joy of your salvation, right? And so when we look at Psalm 51, most of the time, those are the verses that get all the traction. But, but I wanna, what I want to do today is I want you to, to kind of put those back in context of all 19, and, and let's not cherry pick some of the verses that make us feel better, that we can apply easily, and let's look at all 19, because what I, what I think happens when we do that is that Psalm 51 gives us a glimpse into the daily rhythms of a Christian life, that, that when we look at it as a whole, we see that there's this rhythm fueled by true repentance, and that, that true repentance, uh, repentance has a, a thoughtful realization of our sin, that, that David acknowledges and realizes his sin. But it's also marked then by a heartfelt confession. It's not just a, a mental or thoughtful realization of the sin, but it's an actual heartfelt confession of that sin. But you'll notice he doesn't list his sin, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then ultimately, it, it ends, the rhythm of the Christian life ends with a restored purpose that we're then sent forward in a restored purpose for our lives. And so as we look at this chapter as a whole, I pray that that the rhythm that David writes in this psalm would be one that we can then take forward as we live our lives and continually have a heart saturated by God's word. And so the the first aspect we see is that there's a a thoughtful realization of sin. This is kind of like the intellectual level. And, And you see this early on. Right? But when you, when you see that you have to have a, a thoughtful realization of sin, then it comes back to that understanding of you have to answer the question, how bad then is sin? When you think of sin, is it total corruption of everything about you or is it just a, a situational failing on your behalf? Right? Because a lot of people think sin and they just think that's that one moment and not the entirety of their being, their existence, their heart. And so we have to ask, how bad is sin? And, and it might make you uncomfortable to consider that because you might find that you've been treating sin differently than David does or that God's word exposes. And so when we understand that, it's uncomfortable. 
Because then we have to realize that we're not the hero of our stories. In fact, we're the ones that screw it up most of the time, right? That, that we so often find ourselves as the one that's like, well, if I'm honest, I'm the one that caused that. Or that was my selfishness, or that was my insecurities that I portrayed differently. And so sin might make us uncomfortable, but we have to have a thoughtful realization of it if we're going to move forward in our lives in a healthy way, in a sustaining way. We have to understand sin. William Plummer says, talks about repentance this way, and, and it's an it's a amazing statement. But don't, don't freak out after I read it because we'll explain it, okay? It says that if, we, if there were no hell, the sincere penitent would still wish to be delivered from sin. And I read that and I was like, wait a second. I'm like, I had to read it again. Did I see it right? And so if there was no hell, so if there's no penalty of sin, if there's nothing, then what he's saying is the true penitent, the true repentant person would still want to be delivered from sin, and I thought that was a profound statement because there's so many people in the church today and culture today that are worried about sin because of the punishment, not the existence. And so what he's getting at is this understanding that if we truly understand sin, it's not the punishment that we want deliverance from, it's the reality of sin. That if there's no punishment, we still want to be delivered from sin. And so does that characterize you? Are you worried about sin because of the penalty or because of the reality? That a true repentant heart, a language of true repentance, understands that if we're sincerely worried about our sin, it's not because of the penalty that it will cause or that it will gain. It's because of the existence of it. And that's exactly what David sees, right? It's true repentance. He understands this thoughtful realization. It starts with penalty. If you look at verse 1, he says what? Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Have mercy. It means that don't give me what I'm due because of my sin. Right? Have mercy on me. And then he starts talking about God, right? That because of your steadfast love, your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He's saying that there's a penalty that's going to happen, but... His plea is for forgiveness based on God's understanding of who he is. But then when you start reading further, you realize that he's not talking about specific sins. He's talking about the reality of sin. If he was talking specifics, then you could see we could be looking over David's shoulder as he writes this when he's talking about the fact that he was confronted in his sin and his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband and his conspiracy and to get other people to cover up that because that's what this is. But he doesn't mention any of those. He says sin. The reality of sin is what he's talking about. Because he acknowledges that sin is ultimately against God. And that's where we have to kind of change our understanding. And in verse 4, that's where he says, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. But so many times in the church today, we have the language that, that the people who are affected by our sin are the ones that we've sinned against. David didn't sin against Bathsheba. She was caught up in his sin, but he sinned against God. And the effects maybe happened to her, and their child died because of that. But he didn't sin against her. He sinned against God, and it was caught up that way. 
And so what we understand then is the catalyst for true repentance is thoughtful realization of the guilt, that we have to be guilty of it. It's verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. The total sin, the existence of sin, the reality of sin. And he's guilty. If you have ESV, it says iniquity. If you have some other versions, they translate that, my guilt. Cleanse me from my guilt of sin. So if we're truly repentant, we're going to realize our guilt. It's the penalty, but then we're going to have an awareness of the magnitude of sin, which is verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And if you're looking at an understanding of my sin is ever before me, it doesn't really make sense when you just realize, until you realize, that what he's talking about is the fact that he can't overcome it, that it's there. When he closes his eyes, he remembers his sin, that he was confronted with it. It was completely exposed. He was open to the reality of his sin, and it's ever before him. And some of you might be in that situation right now that you're trying to avoid the reality that you've messed up, you've sinned, and and you don't want anyone to know, but when you lay in bed at night and you close your eyes, it's there. You see it. It's constantly there, and it's weighting down your heart. But what we have to understand is that true repentance will only come once you realize the magnitude of that sin. If it's not the total magnitude of sin, then it's not going to be total repentance. But it's also realizing that it's everything about us. It's understanding the totality of our sin. If you see verse 5, it says, Behold, I was what? Brought forth in iniquity. My mother conceived me in sin. Right? He's, he's not talking about blaming his mother for his sin. He's saying that there wasn't a moment when I was on this earth breathing that I did not have sin. He understood the totality of his sin. He's not blaming, but expressing the fact that he's sinful. And it's this situation with Nathan when he confronted him that brought all this to head, that he just pours out his heart for us in this psalm. And so does the reality of the guilt, the awareness of the magnitude, and an understanding of the totality of your sin worry you? Or is it just kind of, eh, that's for those people? Because if we get caught up in this fading realization of cultural Christianity, the experience of sin doesn't bother you because you can always find someone who's worse. But we have to understand that all of us have sinned. We have to understand that even though we've all sinned, that none of us can help ourselves out of that. Because he's saying, wash me, God. You have to do this. Is sin what you want freed from or merely the penalty of it? Because if it's just the penalty, then you're never going to peel the layers back of your sin enough to actually deal with the heart condition that produces it. If it's just penalty, you're going to live your life on a surface-level realization of weak repentance that constantly never delivers. But if it's the reality of sin, it's the existence of sin that you want delivered from, then you're going to peel back the layers of your sin, and you're going to dive deep into the condition of your heart where you don't want to go, but knowing that then when that's exposed and that's confessed and you're repenting of that deep heart condition that you can truly repent and be delivered. And that sustains you. 
And so if you've lived your life just going from one mountaintop to one valley because of your sin, then truly understand that it's a total heart condition. It's not a situational failure. Deal with the heart. There's an idol under every sin that we have to dig down deep to get. And if you'll go there, if you'll truly understand the magnitude of your sin, the totality of its experience, then your true repentance is going to be fueled by a thoughtful awareness of it. Because you're going to see it. You're going to know it. It's going to be exposed. But then what that's going to do is then it's going to send you to the fact that your repentance then is fueled with a heartfelt confession. Right? That if it's, a, if it's a true realization, if it's a thoughtful, a mental level, and you take it deeper, that's going to bring it into your heart, and it's going to be a heartfelt confession of your sin. You can't just repent without confession. And that's what David is saying. He's confessing his sin. He's acknowledging that it flows from him. That true repentance flows from deep within your heart, deep within the heart of a believer. And so understanding our sinful nature and not just sinful acts, leads us to the realization that it has to be a heartfelt confession, a broken confession. Like when you truly confess that leads to true repentance, it's the rock-bottom confession. There's nothing else that you can do, and you cry out to God. And you confess because you've sinned against God, that you only have I sinned against. And if you've never come to the realization that it's against God that you've sinned, then it's not been a heartfelt confession. It's been a surface-level experience. Because when you see the magnitude and the holiness and righteousness of God, and you say against you only, that's a deep understanding of your sin. And you realize that sin because you failed to live as God's called you. Look at verse 6. He says, you delight in what? In truth. Some of your, your um, translations might say that, that you want to have integrity, that, that God delights in integrity, in truth, in the inward being, in the heart, that he, God wants a, a true integrity in the heart of his people, and that you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So we've realized that we confess because we've sinned against God alone, and we know that because we've failed to live as God has called us to live, that we don't have a delight of the truth in our inner being. And that we can't overcome that. If you keep going, it's like he just keeps going and going and going. So in verse 7, purge me, wash me. He's saying that I can't do this even though I know that I've sinned. I can't do anything about it. I can't live the way you've called me to. I need you to clean. I need you to wash And they only get there when you understand that you can't create a new heart in yourself. That you can't do it yourself. That your best moral effort or religious piety cannot create a new heart in your life. It doesn't matter how well you perform, your performance is subpar in the eyes of a holy, righteous God. You cannot achieve it yet God sent his son. We have to realize then that there's a deep sorrow, not a surface level regret. And that's what David exposes. 
He's saying that there's this deep understanding. If you go back to 2 Samuel 12, when he's confronted this, you get it immediately. He's angry when Nathan gives him the, the parable that he uses to expose David's sin. He's mad and he's angry and he says, that person shouldn't be allowed to live. And Nathan says, well, that's you. And he says, oh, my sin's ever before me. He's cut deep. And it's not just this surface level sorrow. It's a complete understanding that everything about him has been wrecked because of the reality of his sin against a holy, righteous God. And notice that this isn't early in David's life. Because see, what we have happening right now in pockets of the church is we have people talking about the fact that they can somehow overcome sin to the point that they are no longer sinful. That they don't deal with sin doesn't mean that you don't have the heart that leads to sin. And so this is, this is David after he's already been king, after all of this has happened, and you would think that if someone had experienced God's favor enough to be able to perform well enough, it would be David. And what does he do? He walks out on the porch and sees Bathsheba, and he can't resist, even though he knows that that's against what God has called him to do. And then he just leads it on. It's like, this is the worst. Like, we like to think that Paul is the chief sinner. This is pretty bad. Because he just keeps covering it, covering it, and trying to overcome it so that maybe no one will know. Paul's was out there. Everyone knew. David tried to conceal it, and yet he says, I can't do it. But his best effort couldn't overcome the reality of his sin. So true repentance is fueled by this heartfelt confession, and that includes everything. That's the total understanding. And we get this because David doesn't list specific. If we had to list specific sins in order to repent of them, we would never catch up. But David doesn't do that. He's clearly talking about what happened in 2 Samuel 11. But he doesn't list those sins. He just says, against you have I sinned. Clean, clean me. Cleanse me. Repentance and confession at a heart level covers sin because it's the, the existence of it, not the expression of it. And then that leads us to the realization that we have then a restored purpose through this true repentance. Because what does David ask God to do? Look at verse 10, 11, 12 again. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. True repentance leads to restored purpose because it's a recreation of the person. That it's this completely exposed, your heart's open, you're confessing everything, the existence of your sin. And then when all of that is confessed, then Christ comes in and starts restoring how he puts us together. So we see that we have a restored heart. When we look at this, create in me a clean heart, that's, that's the same language we, that, that, that's used in Genesis 1. This is original creation language. This is spoke creation into being language. This is create in me just like you did creation Give me a new heart. And so that points us to the fact that we can't do it. Like we don't have original creation capabilities. Like we can make stuff out of something else, but we can't create the ingredients we need. We gather the ingredients and then create. God creates out of nothing. And that's what David's talking about. Create in me a new heart. 
So confession doesn't mean we fall back into trying to earn our forgiveness. It says, I can't do it. Create that in me. And that new heart, that new creation gives us new desires. Right? When he says, create in me a clean heart, and what? Renew a right spirit in me, a willing spirit. So what David's saying is, give me new desires, create new desires, so that then I could look away when I walk out on my balcony and see someone. So that we could not click the link that we know. So that we could not share the gossip that we always do. It's creating me this new heart that gives me a new desire not to follow those things, even though I'm tempted. It's give me the strength to remain steadfast. Help me become steadfast in this new heart, with this new heart, through this new creation. Give me a willing spirit to resist and to remain steadfast in the strength that you've given me because I am too weak. Give me a new nature. Give me this new understanding of who I am. And that's where we have to look at the process of sanctification. That when we create, we cry out, creating me a new heart, that's done by the power of the Spirit as we're progressively sanctified. It's not complete and total. But it's progressive as we move forward, as we remain faithful, as we resist and repent. It's throughout life and then ultimately completed when we're with him. But if you want to look at something, maybe you haven't ever noticed this, that verse 10, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, David's asking for the exact opposite of who he is in verse 5. What does he say in verse 5? Behold, I was brought forth in my iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. So I've been this sinner from beginning. My heart is corrupt, so create in me a new heart. He's asking God completely do an opposite work than what I am now. It's a, a, a total transformation. It's the same thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, right? He says, behold, the old has gone and the new has come. The new has come, the new spirit, the new heart, the clean heart has been created through Christ and that enables us then to live and follow him through a restored heart that we can't achieve yet God graciously creates by his power. And in that new heart, we realize also that we have a restored fellowship, right? Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence, It says, create this new heart, allow me to overcome this, bridge that gap from my sin to your righteousness, and cast me not out of your presence. Restore fellowship. Restore that relationship. Bridge that gap and allow me to walk across the outstretched arms of Christ that covers my sin. And that leads us to the restored joy. We so often want to get to restore to me the joy of your salvation without dealing with the terribleness and depth of our sin. We can't have a joy of salvation if we don't have an awareness of our sin. Or the joy we have in salvation is going to directly mirror the reality of our sin. So if we have a low view of sin, then we have a low view of joy in our salvation. Because he didn't really do that much. If our sin's not that total, not that bad, then salvation really isn't that joyful. Restored joy through the realization of what not would have happened apart from God's work. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
Uphold with me a willing spirit. Give me this joy. Allow me to understand this restored joy, this true joy by the power of the Spirit in our lives. We have restored fellowship, which testifies to what God has done on our behalf, which brings joy. Joy is an expression of an understanding of salvation that is possible not by our works, but by Christ's sacrifice. And that leads us to a restored purpose. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. All of a sudden, there's the gospel. Now that I've dealt with myself, creating me this desire, this willing spirit, so then I can testify your ways. But don't we often get that wrong? Don't we often put that backwards? That we're going to go tell everyone else about their sin and all the while ignore our own? That's why this is a true rhythm of the Christian life because we have to be aware of our own sin. We have to confess our own sin. We have to acknowledge the reality of our own sin before we can dare go tell someone else about theirs. Because the joy and the fellowship is what fuels the purpose to tell people about God. That we preach the gospel because we know what we've experienced and we want others to experience that as well. It's not because we're going to go earn something. It's because we've already been given something we didn't deserve. And if you've ever been given a good gift, don't you brag about it? That's all Facebook is, right? It's you're bragging about stuff that you didn't do. I always talk about this when I think of food because I always always see pictures of food, right? And I do that too. I'll send my friends, hey, look what we're grilling. I'm like, and sometimes the picture looks better than the food, right? But they don't know that because they didn't have to taste it, right? And so you're like, hey, that's great. But you brag about stuff. That's what you do. And so that's what this is happening. The gospel proclamation is bragging about what God has done in your life and inviting people to join with you. It's saying you are sinners, yet thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, you've been restored because of his sacrifice. And that leads to praise, right? Verse 14 and 15, deliver me from your, from blood guiltness, O God, of my salvation. And my tongue will what? Sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. We cannot truly and properly praise God without a heartfelt and true confession of our sin. Because the awareness of our sin and the magnitude of salvation leads us to praise his name, leads us to give him glory above all else. We have restored praise because we have a restored purpose and a joy and a salvation that we didn't earn or deserve. Yet we have fellowship because we have been recreated by the power of God. And so what does that look like in our lives now? What is the the practical understanding? How does that actually display itself in the rhythm of a believer. And so really there's three areas, but it all involves seeking the Lord. That we're going to have true repentance. We're going to have rhythms of true repentance where we have a heartfelt confession, a thoughtful realization, and a restored purpose as we seek the Lord first in his word. That if we will not devote time to knowing God's word, we're not going to know him. That we can't know him apart from his word. We can't become aware of the magnitude of our sin without knowing his word. We can't realize his righteousness without his word. 
But it's also in prayer. We continually pray. We continually pray with purpose, believing that he will answer, faithfully waiting for his response. And we've had people praying for our church the last month or so, every Sunday morning. And it's, and it's cool because I can look back and see that there's so many blessings that God has displayed and bestowed on our church since that happened, saying, God, just creating us a heart that wants to follow you. Allow our people to experience you. And it's happening as we faithfully pray, knowing that he will answer, and then wait on him. So we seek the Lord in the word and in prayer, but then also in community. That we see what God is doing in other people's life. And if you're not in community with other believers, then you're shortchanging yourself on the experience of God's activity among his people. And it's messy because it involves people. Right? You, there's, not, there's not community that's wonderful unless it's superficial. If it's true community, it's messy because we're messy, because we're not lovable, because we get frustrated over stupid things, right? I see that all the time working at the school. I'm like, how can a second grader or a kindergartner absolutely frustrate me? I'm like, I'm supposed to be the mature one, right? I have to remind myself, they're kids, but they're little people that are annoying at times, right? And so are their parents, and so are us, But we don't reject community because of that. We dive into it because that's what we're called to do. We seek the Lord in his word, in prayer, in community with other believers. That's what happens. We carry burdens. If you don't know anyone's burden, you can't carry it for them, alongside them. And then it matters nothing and they slowly fade away. And that relationship disappears. And all of those happen. We're able to seek the Lord in his word, through prayer, in community, because we have a restored heart so that we can love people the way Christ loved us. So we can extend grace when people don't deserve grace. Because we can have fellowship because God restored fellowship when he shouldn't have. If he is holy and righteous, as his word says, we should have been condemned. And if you don't think about the reality of that coming, go read some of the minor prophets. Go read Isaiah where it talks about God crushing his enemies so much that it covers his clothes in blood. That's what God should have done to us, yet he sent his son. We have a restored fellowship, so why can't we fellowship with those who haven't nearly, nearly done anything that would compare to what we've done to God? We have joy and a purpose and praise. And we'll all have that in our private and public lives as we seek the Lord continually. But the answer is always we don't have time, right? Isn't that it? If you're, if you're guilty, this is the last thing that we'll talk about, that if you're, if you're guilty of this, this is how I used to think about it. But we don't have time these days. Like I look back at the Puritans. I always use the Puritans as my example because they are amazing writers and I'm a terrible writer and I want to know how they did it. And then I'm thinking, but wait a second, they had so much time. Until you look at the reality of we probably have more time than they did because they had to do everything. They wanted food, they better grow it. There's not H-E-B or Walmart, 
right? If it didn't grow, you die, right? Or you go steal from someone else and then they kill you, right? That's the reality of what happened. So how did they have time? It's because they purposely devoted the time. They woke up and they spent time in the word. What's the first thing we check, Facebook or God's word? I'm guilty of not. We have plenty of time. The decision is, will you redeem it for what God has called you to do or just continue to live a superficial Christian existence that gains you nothing in a society that's against it? There's no gain to superficial Christianity anymore. It gets you nothing. But what it does is it points people to themselves instead of Christ. And so if we're going to have the language of repentance, we're going to be aware of our sin intellectually, and we're going to take that to a heart experience and understand that that doesn't condemn us because Christ. That we can be okay with sin, and the rhythm of our Christian life can be one of continual repentance because of thoughtful realization of sin that leads to a heartfelt confession and a restored purpose that we proclaim His excellencies, that we give Him glory above all else, that we point people to Him because what he's done in our lives, not because how we fixed ourselves. And if we'll have that language and that rhythm, then people will be drawn to the gospel because it's offered nowhere else and in no other manner. Let's pray. Father God, I just... Lord, I pray that we would be people that are not afraid to acknowledge our sin. But God, that that when we're not afraid to acknowledge it, that we would not celebrate it, but we'd be broken by the reality of our corruption. I got an end, the reality of that corruption, when we are aware of our sin, God, that we would be people of a heartfelt confession, that we would boldly proclaim our sin, that we would unpeel the layers of our depravity, exposing the root. God, and as that exposure takes hold, that we would realize that we have a restored purpose because of your spirit in our lives. God, that you have called us to proclaim your good news because it indeed is the only hope in the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.